Romans chapter 3. Oh, man. It's been such a sweet time to be with you already today. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but uh, have you ever noticed that conversations are really amazing? Like you could be sitting around with somebody talking about the weather, and then you somehow you go and you start talking about the war in Ukraine, and the next thing you know, you're talking about your mother's biscuits and gravy or something like that. I mean, it's just incredible. Conversations kind of do that. And when you read the book of Romans, we kind of we, we call it a book, but it's really a letter. And as a letter, it's kind of a conversation. And we sometimes forget that. Like this was not the Apostle Paul writing a theological paper to somebody, you know, and defending the Christian faith as much as it was him as a pastor writing a letter to some friends that he wanted to teach and wanted to uh, train and wanted to encourage. And so this is what's happening here. Paul is going to take a turn in this conversation. It's really fascinating. And what's fascinating about it is that he's going to take this turn in this conversation and he's going to kind of conclude. It's going to make him go in another direction. He won't pick up this conversation again until what we call, what we call today chapter 9 and 10. All right, it's pretty amazing. But most of the people who are reading this letter are like Paul. They grew up as Jews, all right? And now they have embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and they are now Christian. But all their lives as you know, committed Jews, there were rules to follow. There were rituals. There were ceremonies. There was symbolism. And there were holidays to celebrate, et cetera, et cetera. And he starts off the letter, what we call chapter one today, where he says that these Gentiles, you know, the, the Greeks, the Romans, the Gauls, the Brits, you know, they're under God's wrath. They, they know what's right because of God's creation in their conscience, but they don't do it. And their people are like, yeah, that's right, Paul. Absolutely. You tell them. And then in chapter two, he says, the Jews are also under God's wrath because they know even more of what's right and they don't do it. Like, what? You know, there's a shock there. And in chapter three, I think what Paul's doing here, and you know, all, all the commentators would agree too, that he kind of has in his mind the questions that would come up in, the, in the, uh, the idea of a Jewish reader of chapter two. And he kind of see a Jewish reader getting red in the face while he's reading it. You know, are you saying that the law has no value? God gave us the law. You're saying that circumcision is of no, no consequence? God gave us circumcision. That's kind of the flavor of chapter two, but he can see them thinking that. You know, we Jews, we've endured persecution, ostracism, and outright destruction because of our obedience to God. And Paul, are you saying it was, was it all worth nothing? Was it all a sham? We're better off than, are we no better off than those people who don't even lift a finger for God? Who even oppose God? Why not just then live your life the way you want to and just hope for the best at the end, right? Look at verse one. Because he, he kind of anticipates this question. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? I want you to do me a favor and put the word Christian or even committed Christian in the place of the word Jew there. What advantage is there in being a committed Christian? What value is there in things like baptism and church membership, those sorts of things. You ever find yourself asking kind of that same question? I'm worshiping, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm in hours of Bible study. I'm trying to do God's will as it applies to, you know, money, business, my sex life and everything, relationships. But does any of it matter? You know, my pagan neighbor down the street doesn't give a dime about the things of God but he's successful at work. His family life seems really good. 
He's in great health. He's free on weekends. In fact, he's probably packing up right now to go fishing or golfing while I'm sitting here, you know? Job asked the same question, Job 21. He said, why do the wicked prosper, growing old and powerful? They live to see their children grow up and settle down. They enjoy their grandchildren, and their homes are safe from every fear. They spend their days in prosperity, and they go down to the grave in peace, and yet they say to God, go away. We want no part of you in your ways. And at those times, when you get kind of discouraged, kind of living for God and, and serving God, being faithful to God, there's a lingering doubt that can creep into your mind. Just like those Jews that Paul was writing to. Like, what advantage is there really in living a committed Christian life? I mean, there are still car accidents, there's still cancer, right? Is it really worth it to be committed? What advantage is there in being dedicated to God? You might be here today, this is just a really hard season of life for you right now. You're really discouraged, you're really down. You're praying, you're giving, you're serving, you're spending time in God's word, and you kind of have this lingering thought, I thought, I thought life would be better. You know, where's that abundant life that Jesus talked about? You might be like a you might think like a lot of people do. I've had this conversation so many times in my office. People get really discouraged and they're like, man, I work hard, I'm good to people, <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't do a lot of the things other people do, but my life is so hard, I don't understand. You got to think about this. You know, are you and I just as well off if we slack off, right? We just be like everybody else. So I want, to, I want to talk to us today about God's enduring faithfulness. Let's suppose you could sit down with the Apostle Paul for a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you know? He probably would order a venti pumpkin spice with five shots of espresso and oat milk, but you're like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> okay. What advantage, you'd say, Paul, is there in being dedicated to God? And look at verse 2, chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. All right. What advantage is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could, judge, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying this, some claim we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. I got to be honest with you, this is one of the hardest passages in the book of Romans to really try to understand and try to make relevant to our life today. But right in the middle of that passage, you see the word faithfulness. And that is really what we want to center on today because that is really the central issue in this kind of hard to understand passage is God's faithfulness. See, Paul says, they say, what, what advantage is there in being committed to God? And he says, much in every way. The word here means a great magnitude. There's, there are many, many blessings of being, you know, being committed to the Lord. And there are three that he brings out. First of all, 
the advantage of hearing the unmistakable voice of God. All right, notice what he says there in verse two. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. I know a man in this area who's a very successful farmer and rancher. And he does something that very few people who do what he does for a living do. If you're farming and ranching, you're going to get the most out of your land you possibly can. And 99% of farmers, they're, they're going to farm every square inch that they can, try to bring in as much crop as they can year after year. <clears throat> but this man is one of the most successful farmers in the Texas Panhandle. He's also a committed Christian. He's a student of God's word. He trusts God by faith. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, nobody reads Leviticus, but he does. God told the people of Israel, you are to give your land a Sabbath, a year of Sabbath rest once every seven years. So he has his land divided up, you know, into seven different pieces. And every year he gives one seventh of his land a year off, a Sabbath rest. And he's been usually successful. He's only farming six sevenths of his land every year, yet he's far more successful than all the other people who are farming seven-sevenths of their land every year. Last night, I was watching, I was kind of flipping through YouTube and watched a little video about Chick-fil-A. You know, uh, Truett Cathy began Chick-fil-A back in 1967, you know, with the gospel sandwich, right? You know, Chick-fil-A. And they're not open on Sundays still to this day. And working six days out of seven, the average Chick-fil-A franchise nets $5 million a year. The next closest competitor is a McDonald's franchise, which is a little over $3 million a year, and they're open seven days a week. Yeah, pretty incredible, isn't it? That's the reality of God's design. The creator of the land, our bodies, our minds, he knows best. And God's people have this distinct advantage of being able to hear and know the voice of God. Joshua chapter one, the Lord said, be careful to obey all the instructions that that Moses gave you don't deviate from them, and then you'll be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually, meditate on it, and then you'll prosper and succeed in all you do. So you see there in verse two, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What he means is, most importantly, when he says, first of all, most importantly, the great advantage of being a Jew was that you had heard the voice of God. Psalm 147, he reveals his words to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel, and he has not done this for any other nation. You know, we call ourselves Judeo-Christians. Why? Because we get a chance to have the Old Testament, the voice of God giving to the Jewish people. And notice that phrase Paul uses here. I love it. The very words of God. You know, a lot of your Bible students, you know, that word logos, you know, is the word, the word for word. All right, where a lot of us going through the book of John right now in our home groups, we've talked about the logos. This word is, word is the word logia, okay? Plural, words, the words of God. And the connotation here is that these are the spoken words of God, the Jewish people, you, you're saying you have heard God's voice. And we as Christians, they be saying that, man, we have heard God's voice. Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, Moses said, you were shown these things that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other God. He let you hear his voice from heaven so that he could instruct you. Wow. Let's stop and think about it. Man, when you and I, we sit down, 
You sit down with the Word of God. You know, the Bible is the only book you can never read alone because every time you open up your Bible to read the Bible, Jesus said, there's another counselor, the Holy Spirit, who will come and he will guide you. And that from heaven, another dimension of reality, God is instructing you. He's instructing you on how to live your life. It's an amazing reality. It truly is. I don't think it's possible to overestimate how incredible that is. The same voice that spoke everything into existence resonating in your ears. The Bible is God's words written, and it's knowledge from every dimension of reality. That means that the Bible reveals to you and to me the fullness of reality, the seen and the unseen, the material and the spiritual. Hebrews chapter 11 Uh, The writer of Hebrews said that Moses had a chance to be called Pharaoh's uh, the son of Pharaoh. And he could have had all the wealth, all the pleasure, all the excess. He could have had all those things, but instead he chose to be mistreated with the Hebrew people. He left behind the temporary pleasures of sin. Why? He was looking forward to the reward because he could see what was invisible. You know, we're all familiar with the idea that our bodies are like machines. They need the right routine of things like food and rest and exercise if they're going to run efficiently. You take your body and you fill it up with you know, drugs, alcohol, sugar, give it no rest, get no exercise. You know, it starts to look kind of like mine. You know, <laughs> it looks kind of rough. Our bodies lose their power of healthy function. It takes time, but eventually they break down. What many don't grasp is that's what God wants you and I to think about our soul. As beings with a soul, spiritual beings, we are made to bear God's image, made to resemble God in our soul, in our spirit. This means that our soul was made to to feed on or to, to run on, so to speak, the truths of God's word. That's why Psalm 197, Psalm 19, 7, David said, the Lord's instruction is perfect, reviving one's very soul. God's enduring faithfulness begins with his commitment to his word. When we love the words of God, they revive our soul. He instructs our minds. And the psalmist here says that that makes our lives exceptional. You can neglect your health and over time your body begins to crumble. You can neglect your soul by not spending time in the words of God. And then your character begins to crumble. And when your character begins to crumble, That's when your relationships begin to suffer. We all know that life is relationships and the rest is just details. Number two, the second advantage is this. The advantage of forming into, or you might say morphing or metamorphizing into the unassailable character of God. You know, one of my very favorite Bible teachers of all time is a guy named Ravi Zacharias. And it came out a couple of years ago that his whole life was... I shouldn't say his whole life, but that, you know, behind the scenes where nobody knew he's actually a a sexual predator. And man, his ministry came crashing down. I took his books off my shelf, et cetera, et cetera. One of the biggest influences on me for my passion for the local church, a guy named Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church up in Chicago. Again, a couple of years ago, it came out that there were a lot of improprieties with him and women in his church. And so I'm taking his books off my shelf. One of the greatest authors I've ever read, one of the greatest speakers I've ever heard, John Piper. Just incredible speaker and writer. He's got a son who's a 
a militant atheist, and and uh, his his family life is is just a mess. And we're told, you know, in you know First Timothy, you know, that a man's home is a reflection of his ministry. You know, so I've been trying to work through that. And there's other sermon leaders whose sermons and speaking I just love guys like Brian Houston, Mark Driscoll, James McDonald, who have been caught up in terrible financial improprieties in the last couple of years. You know, I've talked to so many people over the years who have been disillusioned by a fallen Christian leader, somebody they they believed in, they trusted in, they they listened to, they they hung on his or her every word. And the news comes. They're not what they appeared to be. They're a bezler, they're a liar, they're a sexual predator, an adulterer. And some don't just give up on the man and his ministry. They give up on the Messiah as well. Because the idea goes something like this. Well, because the devil would love for us to believe, well, if there's something wrong with the messenger, there must be something wrong with the God that he serves. This is the mindset that Paul comes across uh, comes against here in verses three and four. The idea that because there's something wrong with God's people, there must be something wrong with God. And you see that in verses three and four. What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. By the way, Paul is being very generous here when he said some Jews do not have faith. In fact, if you read your Old Testament, most Jews failed to be true to the commandments that God had given them to live by. And if God's people failed to stay true to God, is it because God has not been faithful? And some people are saying this, something like this, man, well, God should have done more or God should have done better. And then his people would have been faithful. That's where Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. Who would dare suggest that God is the failure here? But how many times have we heard people say that? When the, when, the, when the ministry crashes, the leader falls, somehow God failed? No. Let every man be true. I'm sorry. Let, let, every man, let God be true and every man a liar. Who would suggest that God has failed because people have failed to measure up to his expectations? And why would anyone say that God is at fault for the harm that human beings do in his name? Even David, one of the finest men in history, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the warrior poet of Israel, a man after God's own heart, was a disappointment. David was guilty of adultery and calculated murder of a soldier serving in his army. The man was a patriot. For a year and a half, David hid his sins and he refused to admit them to God or to anyone else. He went on acting as though he was still the righteous king and the sweet psalmist of Israel. And then God spoke to Nathan, the prophet. He said, I want you to go confront David with his sin. And he did. The jig was up. The secret was out. Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, thou art the man. And you know what David didn't do? He didn't blame God. He said, well, God could have you know, protected me from that temptation. God could have intervened. No. He didn't try to squirm away. He didn't try to justify his actions. He confessed his sin. He said, God, I agree. So confession means to agree with God. I'm the one here who's flawed. That's called iniquity. I'm flawed. It's my fault. And he wrote Psalm 51. And Paul quotes part of Psalm 51.4 right here. I want you to see it's up on your screen. I've seen it against you and you alone. 
I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict completely correct when you issue your judgment. There are many, many times that we're disappointed, we're discouraged, and we find ourselves wishing God would have done things differently. You're wondering why he didn't. God, I wouldn't have responded the way that I did if I would have had a little bit more help or if I would have had a little bit more grace or something like that. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I can fall into a terrible well, or I should say a pit, a self-pity. God, I've been doing everything you asked. I'm doing my best, and then this happens. Or I'm doing so much more than everyone else I know, but then this happens anyway. Lord, I don't get it. Or it's not fair. Lord, something's not right. Richard Halverson, I've quoted him before. I, just, I, I, I love his books. said this, In such crucial days, we need to remember the absolute dependability of God, the absolute faithfulness of God, the absolute integrity of God. No matter what happens to me personally, however circumstances may converge upon my life, let God be true. If God is not true, then who or what can be trusted? Those are the times I have to remember that in my, in the finest moments of my very, very best day, my very, very best is like filthy rags in comparison to God's holiness, God's goodness. And yet through it all, God is faithful to me. God is faithful to you. Second Timothy chapter two, Paul wrote this. Here's a trustworthy saying, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. In life, there are setbacks, there are failures, there's disappointments, there's heartaches, there's confusion, there's pain. In the midst of all of them, God is not the problem. And I just want to tell you what I tell the staff. I tell the staff, I'm a deeply flawed human being, and I will disappoint you. I will let you down. All right, I will make mistakes, and I will fail. Now, I hopefully will have the humility to confess when that happens, but let every man be a liar and let God be true. I'll say that one more time. Let less be a liar. Let God be true. That is so, so key. So key. The truth that we have to absorb into our deepest heart centers on the character of God. You see, in God's eternal purpose, our character and God's character are inextricably entwined. God's enduring faithfulness is this. God's character is such that he will not relent in his lifelong pursuit of shaping your character and mine. And it's in the heart and mind of eternal God to shape your character into something more like his. And so, yes, there are going to be times in life that we are wounded and hurt and disappointed and discouraged. Yes, because it's in those times that we say, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need you. And that begins to shape our character. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said this, you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds to clothe yourself with a new self. That new person is created to be like God, truly good and holy. And we all know this. I mean, it's an axiom of life, isn't it? That the times that were hardest in life is when I learned the most. And I want you to see this little diagram for a moment. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. Those things combined together They express themselves in synergy, and that is your character, all right? The way you think, act, and feel. So let this sink in today. God is molding and shaping 
your mind, your will, and your emotions through all the circumstances of your life because of his enduring faithfulness. And yes, people are going to let you down. Circumstances are going to let you down. Life is going to let you down. Absolutely. Why? So that the way that you think, act, and feel will be more like God himself. (sighs) Hebrews 12. He disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share his holy character. Wow. All discipline at the time seems painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so Paul would say, yeah, there are people who have failed, but through it all, God has been faithful. Last one is this. It's this advantage of experiencing the undeserved grace of God. Now, I don't know when it'll ever happen that I'll, I, I just, I, it won't be until glory that I'll understand this incredible, this epic reality of God's grace toward me. It is amazing. You know, there's a book that I read in college. It was called The Satan Seller. Some of you are going to know what I'm talking about because it's pretty old. I'm dating myself here. This is early 80s, right? It's a personal story of a guy named Mike Warnke. He was all over national TV and he would speak to sold out auditoriums filled massive churches. And one time I went to hear him in person. So he's a quasi-Christian comedian and then speaker, but he was a great speaker because it's an incredible story. He was a self-proclaimed priest in the church of Satan. And he, he had this book, The Satan Seller, when I read, because I heard him speak. He's like, oh, this is an incredible story. And so he described these weird rituals that he had done and the twisted things that he had done. He did terrible things to people in this book throughout his teens and his 20s. And then someone shared the gospel with him and he was just miraculously saved. And he began preaching and telling his story. And the sad part is it was all a lie. It was an elaborate hoax. And there were a lot of us that were just floored. We had no idea, no idea. But have you ever thought about this? In the Christian world, we have this infatuation with those incredible testimonies, don't we? You know, I've heard people speak who've been delivered from, from gangs, from organized crime, from drug addictions, from homosexuality, from alcoholism, from prostitution and Satanism. And you kind of marvel at it like, wow, what a great God we serve. God can do anything. And it's almost like if anybody has a really, really sinful past and they get saved, it's like, man, hand that guy a microphone. Okay, <laughs> we want to hear that story. You know, the great, great testimony, by the way, there's maybe some students here today. The great testimony is when you've been faithful to the Lord all through your teens and your 20s. That's the testimony that we should be having up here. Give those people a microphone. How on earth did God get you through high school and college and you kept, you know, your purity, your sanity, and your spirituality, et cetera, et cetera. That's the great testimony. But we don't really like that testimony so much. It's not a great testimony. We like to hear about the prostitute who, you know, came to Jesus and things like that. It's almost as if we believe that the badder a person is, the better it looks for God saving them, you know? That's the mindset that Paul attacks here, that somehow our sin reveals God's glory, so that makes our sin okay. And you think, that's twisted. I know, but that's what Paul was dealing with in the first century. Look at verses five through eight. I'm just going to kind of skim over this, okay? 
If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath? I'm using a human argument. He wants people to understand that. Certainly not. That were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might say, well, if my falsehood or my sin enhances God's truthfulness and holiness, that increases his glory. So then why is he condemning me as a sinner? If God brings good out of my evil, then why is he getting mad at me? Here's what, here's what a Jewish person might say. Okay, Paul, you're saying that Israel has a sinful past, but God used Israel's sinful past to accomplish his will. As Michael read to us a little while ago, Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. God got great glory from that. Why should God punish their sin? If God brings good out of evil, how can he fault me for doing the evil that brings him so much glory that he brought good out of? Think about this. Let's suppose that John and I got really upset at one, one another one day, and I shot John, okay? <laughs> All right. And I, would, I mean, I love John. He's awesome, okay? But let's suppose that I did. Okay, we're arguing about Hunting the Rock. He didn't like that song. I do, you know? And so we're, we're arguing about it. <clears throat> he nearly dies. I go to prison. All right. And uh, Susanna nurses John back to health. And in the midst of that, their relationship grows even closer. And they have this incredible marriage. And they're going off there telling their story about how God used that terrible incident to give them an incredible marriage and how God used that to bring healing to their relationship, et cetera, et cetera. And I hear about this. So I call Craig, my lawyer friend. And I say, hey, man, I want a new trial. What I did to John was actually a good thing, right? I shouldn't be in prison for doing something good. He's fine and they have a better marriage than ever. How come I'm in prison for doing a good thing? You think, Les, that's twisted. I know, it is. But that's what some people were saying to Paul. You might think that this person might have a torrid love affair with a certain sin and is trying to find some justification for this sin that they love so much. And Paul says in verse eight, this is exactly what I deal with in certain places that I go. This idea of the supremacy of grace gets twisted and warped by some people into limitless sinning. Salvation by grace alone is a license to sin or even an encouragement to sin. And I want you to think about this. It doesn't matter if you grew up Baptist or Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Mormon, or Episcopalian. We've all had these thoughts that creep into our minds, you know? Something like these. Well, once saved, always saved, right? You know, if I commit this sin, it's not like I'm going to lose my salvation. I'm one of the elect, you know? My sins are already forgiven. I'm justified by faith. I believe. I'm okay. I can keep doing that. It's fine with God. Or I can, I can sin now. I'll just, I'll just confess later, you know? What this kind of person is really saying that in the truest place of their heart, there's a sin that they love. And if life was monopoly, they're twisting the grace of God into a get out of hell free card. Is what they're doing. And Paul is incredulous. He says, if someone thinks that way, their condemnation is deserved. Because a heart that takes the grace of God and kind of bends it and twists it to ju justify sin, that's a heart that will be found lacking on the day of judgment. A heart that strives for duplicity instead of honesty and sincerity and fidelity, that is not a heart 
where Jesus dwells. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, we have renounced disgraceful desires and underhandedness. We refuse to practice trickery and cunning or to handle dishonestly the word of God, but we state the truth clearly and candidly. And so we commend ourselves, look at this, in the sight of God, in the sight of God. We all should have this idea all the time that God is, we are in God's sight. God is observing our lives on a daily basis. In verse six, look at verse six. Paul tells you and me again, which he said several times in the previous two chapters, there will come a day that God will judge the world. And when he does so, he will do it in righteousness. This word also means justice. And here's God's enduring faithfulness to us. There will come a day that there will be justice for all. God will right every wrong. He will expose every liar and he will deal with everyone who has defied him. Romans chapter 14 says, It is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, and each of us will give an account of himself to God. I just want to say that man, when that day comes for me, and I stand before the Lord, I want to be able to humbly say, Lord, I, I'll be down on my knees. and I say, Lord, I, every day, I know I didn't do it well, I didn't do it perfectly, but I gave it everything that I had. I did everything that I could to live my life with honesty and sincerity and fidelity to you, Lord. The desire of my heart was always to live a life that gives you honor and gives you glory. You know, when that day comes, we stand before God. We're going to look back on our lives. We'll be able to see the hard times, the confusing times, the disappointing times, those times where we said, God, what are you doing? And we'll see God's enduring faithfulness through it all. We'll be able to say all along, God was faithful to his word. He kept his promises to me. All along, God was faithful to do his work in me, to shape my character, to be more like this character of Jesus. All along, God was faithful to my desire to honor him. And he saw everything. And he is rewarding all of it. And when it has all been said and done, you and I will be able to say at the top of our voice, it was worth it all. It was worth it all. Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah said, Therefore our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, the hardship that has come upon us and all that has happened to us, you have been just. He's always faithful. Always faithful. Let's bow our heads together for a moment this morning if we could. If you would just kind of quiet your heart with me for a couple of moments. As I was preparing this message, I just really thought to myself, I'm sure there are some people in the room today who are discouraged. Just not really sure that God is being faithful or having such a hard time seeing what God is doing. And I just want to come before you today and just let you know that God is faithful. No matter what you may be going through, no matter what other people have done, no matter how other people have behaved, no matter how other people have responded to God's grace. God is faithful, and it is worth it all. It will be worth it all. And so, if you're here today, and you've just been struggling, wondering, is, is God really committed to me? Is God really there for me? Is God really for me? Because the circumstances of your life don't really seem to show it. Would you just go before the Lord this morning and just say, Lord, would you give me a a new vision this morning of your faithfulness. 
your enduring faithfulness. That may not be where you are today, but you may know somebody who's sitting in that chair today. Maybe it's somebody in your family, your church family, uh, somebody that's in a friendship with you. Pray for them this morning that they'll be able to see God's enduring faithfulness more clearly than ever before. So let's be quiet together for a moment. Let's go before the Lord. Speak to him about his faithfulness to us. Father, I just want to come before you today on behalf of that person here today, Lord, who's serving and giving and doing and being, Father, to their very best, everything that you have ever asked for or wanted. And yet, Father, their life has confusion, pain, or disappointment built into it right now. Lord, I just want to come before you on their behalf today and just pray, Father, that you would just reveal to them in a new and fresh way, Father, your faithfulness your enduring faithfulness. And so, Lord, I just ask that here as a church body, Father, that you would just use us, Lord, in those, those low times, those hard times, Lord, to encourage one another. But Lord, I pray that in the secret place of their heart as well, Lord, that you encourage their heart today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.